You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. How are we doing this morning? Are we good? Yeah. So glad to hear it. Have you ever been in a situation that just was not working for you? Yes. Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was a particular community or neighborhood. Maybe it was a relationship. You probably felt uncomfortable and frustrated and unhappy and perhaps a fair amount of confusion. Yeah? Well, Monica and I have sure been there. Oh, man, we were frustrated and we were confused. For us, we, had, we were stuck in a small valley town for 20 years in an investment property that was never meant to be our forever home. And it was going to go highway commercial someday. And so every dime we poured into it felt like we were just flushing money away. There was a highway overpass construction happening 500 feet away from us, all around us. They must have moved 60 thousand metric tons of dirt. They literally level, brought the ground up like 30 feet for a, half a mile. It was, it's the, one of the biggest overpass projects I've ever seen, 500 feet from our house there. Most of our kids were missing, um, lacking good friends. Uh, the church that we had planted and were um, a part of for years was going through some pretty serious challenges, and Monica and I felt like we had made very few deep, meaningful, and fulfilling relationships. And our hearts were already up here in the foothills. We had a cabin up here, we had found some community, and we'd found a church that we loved. And we prayed, and we prayed, and we looked at hundred, uh, probably a hundred homes, ask our realtor. We experienced one setback after another, one rejection after another. We'd put a cash offer down and not get it. We'd put a you know loan offer down and not get it. We'd ask, offer more and not get it. We'd it, it was crazy. We were experiencing discomfort and frustration and unhappiness and confusion on a daily basis. And we just knew that we weren't supposed to be there any longer, but the Lord had not released us. And it seemed like he wouldn't release us. You can relate? Yeah. Well, Jacob, the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham, undoubtedly related too. For the last month or so, we've been studying him and his rather dysfunctional family. We have learned that to this point, Jacob's life has not been the life of a rock-solid man of God. We haven't learned amazing life lessons by looking at what Jacob did, nor in how he responded to seeing God at work all around him. But instead, by watching Jacob, we've learned quite a bit about how not to live. In Jacob, we have seen a very human and fallible man a man stumbling through the world, frustrated, often confused, and mostly unaware or unappreciative of God's work in his life. And although Jacob's wealth is growing and the size of his flock and the amount of his possessions is expanding, things aren't going especially well for him in the area of relationships, and his frustration is growing. He has spent 20 years living away from his family, 20 years in less than ideal circumstances, being manipulated and used by his own father-in-law. He's definitely ready for a change, but how will he know when it's time to move? Well, today we're going to see that God has been aware of Jacob's plight and that God has been moving in his midst. And we will see that God propels Jacob. We will see that he pr provides for Jacob, and we'll see that he protects Jacob. Every preacher's dream, alliteration, 
three good P's right there. And finally, though, without the matching alliteration, we will see that God is the God of square pegs. <laughs> like Jacob. Our text today is Genesis 31. And as a forewarning, Bible trivia time, anybody know what the longest book in the Bible is by English word count? Jeremiah. Book. Longest book. Jeremiah. Second longest book. Genesis. Second longest chapter in the longest, second longest book is today. So get comfortable. Make sure you got, okay, here we go. There's some really good stuff here. We're going to tackle it as it comes. And we're going to chunk the chapter out. And sometimes there's a risk of losing the flow of the chapter. And so so that you understand where we're headed, let me tell you the synopsis of the action in this chapter. Ready? 13 things. One, Jacob hears that his brother-in-law and his father-in-law are changing their attitudes towards him. So God tells Jacob to return to his homeland, Canaan. Jacob then consults his wives and he decides to leave. They leave secretly, but on their way out, Jacob, Rachel steals something from her dad. Now, when Laban finds out that they've left something of his and that something's missing, um, he's ticked. So Laban goes after them. God appears to Jake, Laban in the night um, before he catches up with Jacob, and he says, don't harm Jacob. And then Laban actually catches up. Laban then badmouths Jacob. He lays on a pretty good guilt trip. And then Jacob responds by verbally letting Laban have it, and he gives him an earful. Then Laban proposes a treaty, and then the two men make peace, and Laban turns around and he goes home. Boop, there you go. That's the synopsis. That's the flow. You got it? Okay. Now that you know what's coming, let's dig in together to see what God may have for us corporately and what he may have for us individually. One of the challenges in preaching through the Bible like this is that sometimes you hit a chapter that doesn't necessarily have a clean theme or a clean flow. And so you read through it, and you, and you pray, and you ask God, like, what do you have here? And so it may be that there's one thing in this for you. It may be that you're just getting a great history lesson about what this chapter actually covers. But I believe that God has something for us corporately, and I believe that God will have something for you. So our prayer is that we are open to hearing and receiving from him what he has for each of us individually this morning. So, ready? Starting in verse 1. Jacob flees from Laban. But Jacob cerned lund... L- 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 as Joe. <laughs> but Jacob soon learned that Laban's sons were grumbling about him. Jacob has robbed our father of everything, they said. He has gained all his wealth at our father's expense. And Jacob began to notice a change in Laban's attitude toward him. So the first thing that happens here is that Jacob gets uncomfortable. I don't like this anymore. In Genesis 30, verse 25, he asked to be released, to, be, to return home. And so we can see that that desire began to grow in him. And now, after a few years of shepherding and building his flocks, he becomes aware that Laban's sons have started grumbling and complaining about Jacob and his crazy success. And now even Laban has changed his attitude toward him. Well, when we experience discomfort, I think it's really important that we examine that discomfort. We should examine it. And it could be that there's something off in our lives or in our walk. And if we see this, we really should do something about it. Many times in my life, the discomfort has been about God wanting me to change. My attitudes, my mindsets, my habits, my behaviors. Early in the first years of marriage, when I was uncomfortable, it was definitely about God wanting me to change and grow. 
Thank you for not amening that one, Monica. <laughs> Romans 12, verse 2. Don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So we went to counseling. We got some help. We began to let the Lord work on us individually. And in time, the discomfort resolved most of it. Sometimes discomfort is something God uses to prompt us to change. Verse 3, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your father and your grandfather and to your relatives there, and I will be with you. So Jacob's discomfort came first, and then Jacob hears from God. So the second thing, Jacob hears from God. He says, return. He says, go back. A few times in my life, the discomfort that I felt seemed to be something that was beyond me and my issues and my need for personal growth and transformation. Moving from the valley, our home of 20 years up here to Placerville was one such experience, and that came out of discomfort. And staying put just felt wrong. So God uses discomfort sometimes to change us, but sometimes to move us. Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21, though the Lord gave you adversity for food and suffering for drink. Did you catch that? The Lord gave it. The Lord gave you adversity for food and suffering for drink, but he will still be with you to teach you. You will see your teacher with your own eyes. Your own ears will hear him. Right behind you, a voice will say, this is the way you should go, whether to the left or to the right, or the right or to the left. So Jacob's uncomfortable. God has said, go, return. Did you see what he promised him? Did you catch that at the end of the verse? I will be with you. He said this to Jacob and I wonder, like, can we count on this? Will he be with us when we finally act? Well, what a comfort. Absolutely he will. This is, this is a promise for us to cling to. Monica and I had some really tough times in our adoption story. Um, seven years of infertility. We adopted three kids in eight months and a fourth one two years later. And we went through a lot. I mean, we still are. It's, it's not a smooth and easy road. And at some of the toughest times, we'd have friends say to us, well, cling to the promises of God. And I thought, what promises? <laughs> you know, um, he didn't promise to fix their anxiety. He didn't promise to make us perfect parents. He didn't promise that someday we'd have Thanksgiving meals with them and their children gathered around peacefully and all carving the turkey like... Um, Norman Rockwell, you know, he, those weren't the promises he made, but at one point I recognized the promise was that he would be with me. He would be with us, and he was so faithful to that. What a comfort. So how do you know that he'll be with you? Well, God's spirit lives in us. This promise was actually prophesied in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 27 says, for I will gather you up from all the nations and I will bring you home again to your land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. 
I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so you will follow my decrees and carefully obey my regulations. (laughs) The Holy Spirit was given to us as a deposit, as a guarantee. This promise came to pass at Pentecost. Jesus said to wait and another would come, a counselor, a comforter, and a guide, and that guide would be with us and in us. In 2 Corinthians uh, 1, verse 22, Paul talks about this when he says, and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. And in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, he goes on to say in another book, another letter, and now you Gentiles, you've also heard the truth. The good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago, back in Ezekiel. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. And he did this so that we would praise and glorify him. Amen? Amen. Well, how long will he be with us? I mean, just for a little while, or maybe just while the apostles are alive. God promises to be with us until the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20, teach these new disciples to obey all that I have commanded, all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, what does this mean, to the end of the age? It means until the ages, or until the eras on earth end, and eternity begins when there is a new heaven and a new earth. And so we are promised this. And if you're a believer and you've accepted Christ, then you have this promise to cling to when times get hard. God will be with you. He is with you. Well, Jacob had a different kind of promise. I don't know if you've thought about this. God would be with him. He just made that promise. He would be watching over him as he returned to the land of his father, his grandfather, and his relatives. God would be alongside Jacob, but he would not be indwelling. This is a major distinction between God being with people in the Old Testament times and now, since Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again. Now he is with us, never to forsake us, indwelling. In Old Testament times, the Spirit of God came and went. There was no indwelling. Getting back to the chapter, having heard the promise from God that God would be with him, he now goes and talks with his wives. Chapter, verse four. So Jacob called Rachel and Leah out to the field where he was watching his flock. He said to them, I have noticed that your father's attitude towards me has changed, but the God of my father has been with me. You know how hard I have worked for your father, but he has cheated me. He's changed my wages 10 times, but God has not allowed him to do me any harm for if he said the speckled animals will be your wages and the whole flock began to produce speckled young. And when he changed his mind and he said the striped animals will now be your wages, then the whole flock produced striped young. In this way, God has taken your father's animals and given them to me. One time during mating season, I had a dream and I saw that the male goats mating with the females were streaked and speckled and spotted. And then in my dream, the angel of God came and said to me, Jacob. And I replied, yes, here I am, just like his grandfather did. And the angel said, look up and you will see that, the, that only the streaked, speckled and spotted males are mating with the females of your flock. For I have seen how Laban has treated you. I am the God who appeared to you at Bethel. 
the place where you anointed the pillar of stone and made your vow to me. Now, get up, get ready, and leave this country and return to the land of your birth. So the next thing that happens here is that Jacob seeks counsel. He seeks advice. He seeks input. He seeks agreement. In this case, he seeks it from his wives. Proverbs 19, verses 20 and 21 says, get all the advice and instruction that you can so that you will be wise the rest of your life. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. I, I find it kind of interesting that having her directly from God, he still seeks his wife's counsel. Do we do this? Is seeking counsel always for us? Or are there times when it's a way of allowing others to own the decision with us? The seeking of advice does not only benefit the one who's searching. Also of interest here, did you notice how many times Jacob gave God credit in the last nine verses? Perhaps the schemer is starting to soften and grow in his awareness of God's hand, his provision, his protection in his life. Maybe he's coming around. Back to the text, verse 14. Rachel and Leah responded, that's fine with us. We won't inherit any of our father's wealth anyway. He's reduced our rights to those of foreign women. And after he sold us, he wasted the money you paid him for us. All the wealth God has given you from our father legally belongs to us and our children. So go ahead and do whatever God has told you. (laughs) So here we see that God has provided for Jacob. Even his wives are seeing it. They claim that their father sold him and reduced their rights to those of foreign women, not of daughters. Laban didn't set aside the money that Jacob had given him back in chapter 29. It was supposed to be held by Laban for Rachel and Leah in case Jacob turned out to be a scoundrel. But Laban had spent that money, and thus they claim now that he had sold them. In other words, the money that Jacob gave Laban became a payment as opposed to an insurance policy. Laban basically betrayed them here as their father. He's a bad guy. So they're in full agreement about leaving, and they sound pretty bitter. Returning to the text in verse 17, so Jacob put his wives and his children on camels, and he drove all his livestock in front of him. He packed all the belongings that he had acquired in Padan Aram, and he set out for the land of Canaan, where his father, Isaac, lived. So after seeking counsel, Jacob goes. But where does he go exactly? And does he go 420 miles? The map you're seeing up here, you can't read it very well, I'm sure, but Haran is way up at the top, and he's going to end up in the hills of Gilead here shortly. Well, that's 420 miles, and you're going to find out that it was a 10-day journey. Well, he's, what does he have with him? Flocks, right? In the Middle East, you can't push flocks more than 10 miles a day, from what I've researched. So if you do the math, 420 miles divided by 10 is 42 miles a day. I don't know if that works out too well. Four times that fast, the animals perish. Um, I found an interesting research book that was published years ago, and it was republished recently by biblicalstudies.org in the UK, and it says here that there is another Haran. 15 miles east of Damascus is a place called Haran el-Awamid, or the Haran of the Pillars. Damascus is here. 15 miles east of Damascus is about here, and there is a river That'll come up in just a second here. So that 
location meets every demand of scriptural reference. 70 miles divided by 10 is seven miles today, a day. That's totally doable for a flock. Now, there's not enough time to dig into this, but based on the math, it's a really interesting claim that perhaps is worth digging into for you, those of you that are really fascinated by this kind of biblical history. Anyway, Jacob goes, and he sets out for the land of Canaan. You with me? Good. All right, verse 19. At the time that they left, Laban was some distance away. He was shearing his sheep. Rachel stole her father's household idols and took them with her. Jacob outwitted Laban the Aramean, for they set out secretly and never told Laban that they were leaving. So Jacob took all his possessions with him, and he crossed the Euphrates River, heading for the hill country of Gilead. The Euphrates really quickly, oops, back on the map, was way up at the top. But in researching this, the, the, um, the word Euphrates was actually translated incorrectly in here. It just, the word there is the river. So it doesn't actually say in Scripture that he crossed the Euphrates. We're reading that here, but in the ancient Hebrew, it just the word is river. So anyway, um, the first thing we see here is that wealth had been amassed, enough to make his brothers-in-law um, suspicious and angry. Camels and livestock and possessions, all of this is going with Jacob. God has provided for him despite Laban's attempts to take advantage of him. And the second thing that we see here is that, yes, Jacob does go, but does he leave with his head held high? full of faith that God would provide and protect and guide him? No, he rather leaves in a secretive, unannounced way with the grandkids and his wives, one of them having stolen from his father, her father, the patriarch. I mean, what could possibly go wrong here? <laughs> We're going to talk about dad's idols for a second. This is something that often comes up when people talk about Genesis 31 that he had idols. So why take these idols? They're teraphim is the word. And this is an image of those. These are little clay, um, God, they called them gods, little idols that they would, they would keep. And uh, Ra Rachel stole these from her father. And there are many potential reasons that this happened. Scripture doesn't say why she did. So there are a few things to share here. Perhaps she worshiped these idols too and she just didn't want to be without them. Perhaps she stole the teraphim to get back at her father, whom she felt had been mistreating her and her husband and her whole family. Perhaps she didn't want her father to inquire of them, to use them as tools of divination to catch them, as we read about last week. In Genesis 30, verse 27, you might remember, but Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. So Jacob had, I mean, that Laban had potentially consulted these teraphim in order to find out something from the God that he was seeking. So divination is like witchcraft. So she may have wanted to make sure that he could, if she believed in this, to believe that he couldn't consult them to find out where they had gone because now they've disappeared and he doesn't know where they are. According to some Jewish traditions, Rachel took the teraphim because she just wanted to keep her father Laban from idolatry. She's a good daughter, and she doesn't think her dad should be doing this, and so much like Monica, who flushed her dad's cigarettes down the toilet when she was five. <laughs> just, you know, this isn't good for you now. <laughs> In my opinion, the most intriguing idea really comes um, and surrounds these ancient tablets that I'd never heard before. They're called the Nuzi N-U-Z-I, Nuzi tablets. Tablets from around this particular site in Mesopotamia began appearing as early as 1896. I can see the uh, Indiana Jones movie now. Watch this. 
The first serious archaeological efforts only began in 1925 after Gertrude Bell noticed tablets appearing in the markets of Baghdad. To date, there are about five, can you see the person like, oh, where'd this come from? Um, there are about 5,000 tablets now that are known. Most of them are held at the Oriental Institute, the Harvard Semitic Museum, and the Iraq Museum in Baghdad. Many of them are routine legal and business documents, and about a quarter of them are the businesses' transactions of a single family. E.A. Uh, e. Spicer, in his anchor commentary on Genesis, said this, according to these newsy documents, which have been found to reflect time and time again the social customs of Haran, possession of the house gods could signify legal title to a given estate, particularly in cases of out of the ordinary involving daughters, sons-in-law, or adopted sons. So, perhaps it was because such idols were often used as deeds to property that Rachel thought that by taking them, she then took whatever inheritance might be left to Laban's children, and, and they might return someday after Laban's death and stake a claim to the inheritance. Whatever Rachel's reasoning, we really need to examine ourselves here. As Joe said last week, we really should be reading the Bible as a mirror and using it to see what this passage reflects about us. Why, what might we have done if we found ourselves living back in Haran in ancient times? Are we free from this kind of idolatry that Laban was practicing? Of course we are, right? I mean, do I keep little clay figures on my dresser that I pray to? No, I'm good. Do I create and bow down to golden statues? No, check. Do I worship false gods and sacrifice my children at their fiery altars? No, of course not. I'm good. But I would submit to you that we are not free from idolatry. Listen to what John Piper has to say. It starts in the heart. Craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. That is an idol. Paul calls this covetousness a disordered love or desire, loving more than God what ought to be loved less than God. What idols do we trust in? It was way too easy to make this list. Family could be an idol for you. Finances, prosperity and possessions, climbing the ladder of success, career or otherwise. Our image, physical or otherwise. Romance and sex, comfort, sports, hobbies. The list goes on. Anything we love or trust in more than God. And this is really worth some healthy self-examination. Do any of these things or others take more of my time, my devotion, my attention, my focus than I devote to God and the things of God? we really should be very careful. The Apostle Paul could not agree more. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14, he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Well, whatever may be Laban's reasoning for trusting in his idols in these teraphim, Laban's question really shows the foolishness of idolatry. I mean, what kind of God is it that can be stolen? 
no God at all. Back to the text, verse 22, Laban pursues God. Three days later, Laban was told that Jacob had fled, so he gathered a group of his relatives and set out in hot pursuit. He caught up with Jacob seven days later in the hill country of Gilead. But the previous night, God had appeared to Laban the Aramean in a dream and told him, I'm warning you, leave Jacob alone. Laban caught up with Jacob as he was camped in the hill country of Gilead, and he set up his camp not far from Jacob's. What do you mean by deceiving me like this, Laban demanded. How dare you drag my daughters away like prisoners of war? Why did you sleep, I mean, sneak away so secretly? Why did you deceive me? And why didn't you say you wanted to leave? I would have given you a farewell feast with singing and music accompanied by tambourines and harps. Why didn't you let me kiss my daughters and my grandchildren and tell them goodbye? You have acted very foolishly. I'm, I'm guessing you don't think Laban's being sincere here. I mean, does anything in his past action or in his character suggest that this is really what he would have done? Clearly, Jacob doesn't believe that this is how Laban would have responded. Laban's very next words probably serve to reveal his true thoughts and his feelings. I could destroy you, but the God of your father appeared to me last night and warned me, leave Jacob alone. I can understand your feeling that you must go and your intense longing for your father's home, but why have you stolen my gods? I rushed away because I was afraid, Jacob answered. I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. So there's evidence right here in the passage that Jacob actually did leave in fear. But God. Have you ever thought about that phrase? God himself intervenes, despite Jacob. He provides divine protection. This is actually God sticking to his word. Back in Genesis 28, verse 15, God had made Jacob a promise, a very specific one. He said, what's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything that I've promised you. So he was being faithful to that promise here. Let's never sell God short. Laban says, I could destroy you. That's an indication of his wicked, self-centered, manipulative desires. But God had appeared to Laban in a dream and had told him not to harm his son-in-law, to leave him alone. Where there seems to be no way, God makes a way. Even revealing himself and speaking to someone that we know has no saving relationship with God. Yes, God is a way maker. If I could tell you a, a quick story, I want to tell you about a friend of mine named Jennifer and her daughter Jane. Two years into this crisis of theirs that started with COVID, and I'm not sharing this so that you'll see me. Please understand I'm sharing this with you again so you'll see the miraculous faithfulness of God right now in our current day. Okay? All right, COVID. Time of fear a time of isolation and detachment. In some cases, it's literally led to mental illness issues. So Jane, the daughter, was 14 when this happened. A vibrant, life-loving young lady. Over two years have transpired since that. She's over 16 today. 
And as of a few weeks ago, there was no progress. In fact, things had just gotten worse and worse and worse with her. She was literally living in a shed in their backyard. No physical contact with her family, not stepping foot inside the house, not eating with anybody. They, they were sure that when she was in the tent during the summer that she wouldn't make it through the extreme heat down in the valley. But sure enough, she spent the whole summer. When winter came, they couldn't let her stay in a tent. She refused to come into the house. What are parents supposed to do? She's a good kid. She's not getting into trouble. She just doesn't want to socialize with anyone but her dog. So they bought her an 8 by 10 shed, and they converted it a little bit. And she lived in there for the whole winter. And now it's spring, at the end of spring, and she's still living in that thing with no physical contact at all. She even asked to be emancipated so she could live by herself with her dog somewhere in the woods. So I was driving down to a meeting a couple weeks ago where I knew I'd have time to catch up with my friend, her mom. And I was praying over the day in general, how the meeting would go that day, and just... My friend Jennifer's not a believer in Jesus, and so it hit me in that moment as I was praying that, you know what, she's not going to be praying for her daughter, Jane, at least not to the God and Savior that I believe in. And momentarily, I felt this, it's easy to call it guilt, an impression from the Holy Spirit, like, why haven't I been praying consistently for this for the last two years? Well, number one, I didn't know how bad it had gotten, but secondly, I'm human and not perfect, and I just, it didn't occur to me all the time. And I thought right then, you know what? I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray right now. Wouldn't it be amazing if I prayed for a miracle and then Jennifer returned home to see her daughter healed or at least profoundly changed? And I determined right then, I'm going to pray fervently for that miracle. And I boldly proclaimed to my friend that I'd been praying um, on the way down for God to bring a, a miraculous healing. I would tell her that. And so then I prayed. About an hour later, after I found out about living in the backyard in the shed, after finding out she would have nothing to do with her grandparents who lived in the house behind them with a shared gate, after finding out they hadn't hugged in two years, I told her I prayed for a miracle on the way down here today. And she responded to me, reminding me that a couple of years ago she had taken my advice and actually looked for a good Bible-believing church in her area so she could check out the things of God, and it just hadn't really worked out for her. But she said she'd take all the help that she could get at this point, and she welcomed my prayers, and she was thankful for them. Two weeks go by, and I'm preparing for this message, and I get to this point about not selling God short, and I think to myself, I wonder what happened. So I reach out. Here's her redacted reply. Ty, I've been meaning to reach out to you. Some amazing things have been happening over here since your prayers. I don't know if Jane got it in her mind to start treating me nicer starting that day or what, but it really doesn't matter. She has been a tiny bit like my pre-COVID Jane. Not in terms of germs. She still wears a mask and she won't touch anything with her bare hands, but she's being nice. She's going out of her way to do things with us. She went for a walk with her sister and me, and the two of them rode their bikes to the creek, and they spent six hours together last week. They have been together in the house, together in the house, all capitals, playing video games, doing an art assignment together that Jane had to finish in order to pass her visual arts class. And yesterday, she sat outside with me and my parents, and she just hung out. And our Sunday dinner, she joined us. She didn't eat at the table with us. She was at a table further away, but she ate all the same food and she chatted away with us the whole time. There is so much more, but I can't even think of it right now, which is a minor miracle in itself. She and my husband just got back from fishing all day today. 
since he didn't have much work, and they had a great time. Amazing, right? I love her so much, and I am so grateful for any opportunities to love on her, although she still won't let us touch her either. It's been wonderful having these glimpses of my Jane bug back. I will text you some pictures. (laughs) Praise God. He's so good. Again, what did I tell you? I'm not, this is not about me. This is about our God, right? I'm so excited to see what he's doing in Jane and Jennifer's life after two years of things getting worse and worse and worse. And and I'm not putting God in a box here, but I am fairly certain that knowing that this preach was coming up, he did this not only for Jane and for Jennifer, but he did this for all of you and for all of us, that our faith would be strengthened and that we'd be encouraged and we'd be built up. Our God is still a God of miracles. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to God. The Red Sea, the Jordan River, Daniel in the lion's den, Paul's prison doors suddenly just opening and the chains falling off the shackles from his wrists. Three men in the fiery furnace. Do not sell God short. Pray for miracles. Isaiah 43, 2 says, when you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. As an aside, you need to know when Isaiah was written, the Red Sea had already parted. The Jordan River had already parted as well. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had not yet gone into the fiery furnace. This one verse is both historical and prophetic. I find that so cool. Back to our text for today. God has shown himself even to the unbeliever Laban, and he has told him not to harm Jacob, to leave him alone, Laban has accused Jacob of stealing his gods, and Jacob has claimed innocence. And now he invites Laban to search and see if he finds anything else that belongs to him. Verse 32, but as for your gods, see if you can find them, and let the person who has taken them die. And if you find anything else that belongs to you, identify it before all these relatives of ours, and I will give it back. But Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the household idols. And Laban went first into Jacob's tent to search there, and then to Leah's, and then to the tents of the two servant wives, but he found nothing. Finally, he went to Rachel's tent, but Rachel had taken the household idols and hidden them in her camel saddle, and now she was sitting on them. And this is how we know the Bible is true, because the Bible includes things like this that if we were lying, we would never put in there. When Laban had thoroughly searched her tent without finding them, she said to her father, please, sir, forgive me if I don't get up for you. I'm having my monthly period. So Laban continued his search, but he could not find the household idols. Now remember, Joe has been telling us, the ends do not justify the means. Rachel stole, and she lied, and her own husband has now cursed her unknowingly, and she indeed will die. She'll die in childbirth. Young, early, because of this, the Bible doesn't say. It's not clear, but it is interesting. Then Jacob became very angry, verse 36, and he challenged Laban, 
What's my crime, he demanded. What have I done wrong to make you chase after me as if I were a criminal? You've rummaged through everything I own. Now show me what you found that belongs to you. Set it out here in front of us before our relatives for all to see. Let them judge between us. For 20 years I have been with you, caring for your flocks, and in all that time your sheep and goats never miscarried. In all those years I never used a single ram of yours for food, if any were attacked and killed by wild animals, I never even showed you the carcass and asked you to reduce the count of your flock. No, I took the loss myself. You made me pay for every stolen animal, whether it was taken in broad daylight or in the dark of night. I worked for you through the scorching heat of the day and the cold and sleepless nights. Yes, for 20 years I slaved in your house. I worked 14 years earning your two daughters and then six more for your flock. And you changed my wages 10 times. In fact, if the God of my father had not been on my side, the God of Abraham and the fearsome God of Isaac, you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen your abuse. But God has seen your abuse and my hard work. And that is why he appeared to you last night and rebuked you. I told you he gives them an earful, right? How do we respond when we've been wronged? How does Jacob respond after all of these years? Was this a rant? Sure. I mean, I added the tone, but the words are pretty clear. Is this rant full of self-righteousness that's pent up, pent up anger? Is it truth? I mean, whatever it is, verse 36 tells us Jacob became very angry. This episode reminds me in some ways of Jesus in the temple courts braiding the whip. Did you catch that? He didn't, he didn't look down and just find a whip. No, hey, I'm going to use this impulsively. No, he braided the whip and then used it to clear the temple of all the animals that were being sold in a way that demeaned and denigrated the holiness of the temple and the heart of God. All the injustice that he'd been seeing for years now came out as a righteous anger not a sinful anger. Be angry, but do not sin. Ephesians 4, 26, 27, and don't sin by letting your anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Jesus did not sin. This is critical that, for that we understand that. He would not have uh, been the sacrifice for us, the perfect and holy and unblemished lamb, if he had Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Now think now about Jacob. For 20 years he's been enduring Laban's unfair and manipulative treatment. And picture now the seven days that Jacob has been alone with his thoughts on the back of a camel. Perhaps he was formulating these thoughts and feeling the righteous indignation welling up within himself. Sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. Perhaps he was so deep in his day-to-day -day life under Laban's thumb that he just lost sight of the truth of how he and his family were living. But these seven days certainly brought clarity and conviction. And so he rails on Laban. But in Jacob's defense, he doesn't appear to do anything except point out the truth. He doesn't call Laban bad names. He doesn't curse or curse him. 
He doesn't exaggerate. He appears to speak the truth. And perhaps this is the beginning of the death of Jacob the deceiver, the schemer. And perhaps we are witnessing here something of the birth of the Jacob who becomes Israel in the next chapter. Spoiler. (laughs) But he's still not there yet. Notice still how Jacob refers to God. If the God of my father had not been on my side, the God of Abraham and the fearsome God of Isaac. See, Jacob has yet to fully submit his life to God and declare God to be his God. He'll get there, but he's not there yet. God causes Laban to release them and to offer a covenantal agreement God causes who? Laban to release them and offer the covenantal agreement. When we get to verse 43, the precope says Jacob's treaty with Laban, but I really think it should be Laban's treaty with Jacob. Listen, see if you agree. Then Laban replied to Jacob, these women are my daughters and these children are my grandchildren and these flocks are my flocks. In fact, everything you see is mine, but what can I do about now, my daughters and their children? So come, let's make a covenant, you and I, and it will be a witness to our commitment. So Jacob took a stone and he set it up as a monument and then he told his family members, gather some stones. So they gathered stones and they piled them in a heap and then Jacob and Laban sat down beside the pile of stones to eat a covenant meal. And to commemorate the event, Laban called the place Jegar Sahadutha, which means witness pile in Aramaic. And Jacob called it Galid, which means witness pile in Hebrew. And then Laban declared, this pile of stones will stand as a witness to remind us of the covenant that we have made here today. And this explains why it's called Galid, witness pile. But it was also called Mitzpah, which means watchtower. For Laban said, may the Lord keep watch between us to make sure that we keep this covenant when we are out of each other's sight. So if you mistreat my daughters or you marry other wives, God will see it. If no one, even if no one else does, he is a witness to this covenant between us. See this pile of stones, Laban continued, and see this monument that I have set between us. They stand between us as a witness of our vows. I will never pass this pile of stones to harm you, and you must never pass this pile of stones to harm me. I call on the God of our ancestors, the God of Abraham, your grandfather, and the God of my grandfather, Nahor, to serve as a judge between us. So here we see a treaty. God caused Laban to suggest and establish a treaty. Laban's the one that suggests it. The guy that Jacob's actually fleeing from in fear, who's chasing down his daughters and his grandchildren, ends up saying, let's make a pact of peace. Despite Jacob, God. God is good. (laughs) Secondly, the mitzvah. We've got a picture up here of the famous little piece of jewelry. Well, it's not what you think. We make it out to be this lovey-dovey, may the Lord keep watch over me and thee while we are absent one for another, and we think it's romantic. But what do we know about the Bible? Same thing, context, context, context. The New Living has provided us with the context. Verses 49 through 52 basically say, let these stones serve as a boundary point. I won't pass it to do you harm. You don't pass it to do me harm. Oh, let's make a necklace out of that. (laughs) So these words were spoken by Laban, who is not a God follower first. Secondly, this agreement that they make is not really fully echoed in the language of the jewelry. 
that takes scripture out of context and twists it. Let's not make the mistake that think we're glorifying God by wearing jewelry that takes scripture out of context and twists it. It may seem harmless, but really, can twisting scripture to be cute or to make a buck ever truly be harmless? Mitzvah is the Bible taken out of context. Resuming with the second half of verse 53. So Jacob took an oath before the fearsome God of his father Isaac to respect that boundary line. And then Jacob offered a sacrifice to God there on the mountain and invited everyone to a covenant feast. After they had eaten, they spent the night on the mountain. Laban got up early the next morning. He kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and he blessed them. And then he left and returned home. And this is the end of our text. We're getting there, guys. The fearsome God of Isaac is something we must talk about, though. This is one of the most obscure names of God in the Bible. Joe Kemp, in our home group um, about six months ago, asked us all to think of names of God that we could come up with, and we had a list of like 15 of them on the, on the piece of paper. None of us came up with the fearsome God of Isaac, in all honesty. Twice Jacob refers to God this way. You need to understand, we need to understand, God is multifaceted and God is complex. Yes, he is love, but the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And we are not fully understanding God if we aren't acknowledging in him both love and judgment. Awesome perfection and amazing patience, even with those of us who aren't. Consistent tenderness and yet a consuming fire, a jealous God. Jacob was right to refer to God as the fear of Isaac. And Isaac, his dad, was right to have a godly fear and a holy reverence for God. Can you picture him, Isaac, bound upon the altar when he was younger? His father Abraham poised above him with the knife. Uh, We can only assume that in the coming years, sitting around a campfire at night, he told his family many times of his fear and his faith his faith in his God, a God who spared his life when all looked hopeless, when there seemed to be no way God made a way. The ram, a representation of Christ, the precious and perfect sacrifice was provided, caught in the brush by its horns. Isaac was untied and he was set free and the ram was sacrificed in Isaac's place. And in the midst of his holy and reverent and raw fear of God, God showed up. And you can bet Isaac never, ever forgot this. God was indeed manifest in the fear of Isaac. And we should understand that without question. There is a place for a holy fear of God. Jesus himself confirms this in Luke 12, 5. Jesus said, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I don't know how we can claim to be Christ followers if we deny or twist the very words of God himself. Christ himself. God is love, yes. But Jesus has made it clear in the New Testament that this God of love is a God to be feared. We can and we must figure out how to hold these two truths in tension. So here we are. We've made it through the chapter. Jacob's journey has been a long one, and he's almost back home to his family. He has safely escaped the wrath of his brother Esau. He made it up to Haran, wherever Haran is. And there he found wives, and he's been protected during overt abuse and manipulation by Laban, and he's amassed a small fortune due to God's amazing genetic planning with the flocks. 
He's been protected and provided for, and now 20 years later, he's made it back to the border, basically, of his own family's lands, and God has caused his angry and embittered father-in-law to actually be the one to propose a covenantal treaty, a peace agreement, and to let go him and his flocks and his possessions and his family. Despite all of this, Jacob still refers to God as the God of his father, not his God. This divine revelation won't come until, Jacob rena- until God renames Jacob years later, but in the next chapter. Spoiler. Transition, here we go. Ready? Ready to land this thing? So to wrap it all up, throughout the past few weeks, we've been studying Jacob, his life. We've become aware that we're not witnessing the life of a rock-solid man of God. We haven't been given these amazing life lessons exampled by what he did. We've learned more about what not to do, Right? We've, we've learned about Jacob and how he responded to seeing God at work all around him, but we have witnessed a really human and fallible man of God who stumbled around a lot, uh, unaware of God's work to some degree. And so this has led me to wonder for the past few weeks, what's the deal with God often being called the God of Jacob? We don't say the God of David all the time. We don't say the God of Samuel who was almost lived a flawless life. We don't. Why is God so often called the God of Jacob? At least 14 times in the Old Testament, this is how God's referred. And it's in countless contemporary Christian songs that we sing, oh God of Jacob, right? Why? Well, Arthur Pink states that there are at least three good reasons for this. Here we go, ready? The first, this is, this is an important takeaway. First, the God of Jacob is a God of infinite peace. Sorry, patience, yeah. patience. God put up with a whole lot of manipulative, faith-lacking, self-serving behavior from Jacob. <laughs> Jacob stole the birthright, and he knew better. He, he said something to his mom that makes us know that he knew that that was not a good idea. He never consults God. He never gives thanks to him when he's blessed by him and he's, or protected by him. And he gets all that he has coming to him from Laban, and he takes off with the family secretly, just in no way exhibiting faith or trust in God's provision and protection. 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He, he really doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. So Jacob isn't even acknowledging God as his God yet. And still, as Joe stated last week, despite Jacob, God. God is a God of patience. Secondly, The God of Jacob is a God of election. God chooses whom he chooses. This is a really complex thing that we'll probably dig into at some point. But Romans 9, 10 through 16 says, this son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of scripture, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Well, are we saying then that God is unfair? This is still Paul writing. No, of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy on anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. And Isaiah 55, 8, 9 says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. 
says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Before Jacob had even come out of the womb, God had chosen him. Despite Jacob, God. God is a God of election. And finally, the God of Jacob is the God of all grace. God's choices are not necessarily based on merit, as we just discussed. Grace is unmerited favor. Isaiah 41, 14 says, Though you are a lowly worm, O Jacob, (laughs) don't be afraid. People of Israel, for I will help you. I am the Lord, your Redeemer. I am the Holy One of Israel. And 2 Corinthians 12, 9, each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. Despite Paul never being to shake his thorn, God. Despite Jacob being a lowly worm, God. Despite Samson and his pride, God. Despite Peter and his denials, God. Despite Thomas and his doubt, God. Despite you and me and all of our imperfections and our struggles, God. The God of Jacob is indeed a God of patience, election, and grace. Peg. Yes. Jacob, as we've seen, is much like us. He's a bit of a square peg. His life isn't anywhere near perfect. His faith isn't necessarily in God all the time, and he isn't even always aware of what God is doing around him. But God is a God of grace, patience, election, election, and and grace. He was then, and he still is today. Thanks be to God. If you've accepted God, if you have Christ, you are in the family of faith having acknowledged your sin and your need for Jesus, then the God of Jacob is the God of Tina, the God of Pam, the God of Rich, the God of Barbara, the God of Ty. He is our God because he is a God of patience and election and grace, and we need that, don't we? God ultimately allows the square peg, Jacob, into a round hole from whom the whole family of Israel is born. And that's the corny end to a long sermon. (laughs) Praise be to the God of Jacob. Amen.